a interesting topic, I think, because it's kind of pertinent to everyone. Uh, from, uh, I think studies show that everyone dies. Is that, is that true? Research. It's like <laughs> almost everyone. You know, the, and in the words of uh, what, what did Benjamin Franklin say? Like nothing in life is sure, besides for death and taxes. Like it's the one thing you call the great equalizer. It's the one thing that we're all going to experience. So I think. Oh, uh, maybe not. Maybe not. We'll talk about that. We have different. There's different death brackets. But it's even more complicated. We'll talk about that because we're, I mean, we try to analyze the various sources that talk about about death. Uh, but I think it's an important topic because a um, everyone goes through it. It's something that we all share as humans. You know, life is a disease that we all die from, so to speak. Everyone is going to die at some point. Uh, so therefore, it's something which is pertinent to everyone. Uh, that's, I think, why it's important for us to know about it, but also something that people don't know about it. Like, we haven't, uh, we haven't had anyone, really, who has come back from some. We had that near-death experiences uh, that gave us a little bit of a picture, but those people are near death, uh, to have someone who was dead come back, it's something that we don't really have very much first-hand account. And that's why, like, um, what I'm going to be talking about today is not something that I know from experience. Uh, rather, what I'm going to do is try to collect the various uh, Jewish sources that talk about death uh, and that talk about um, the process of death. Uh, but also what happens afterwards and everything that happens afterwards and therefore to analyze it from the uh, traditional sources and um, traditional sources we mean like the Talmud but also more contemporary sources like uh, medieval sources like Maimonides talks about this, Utsato, we have a lot of information that I tried to collect uh, about this, this intriguing topic. So it's important because... Um, it's something that we all go through. It's something people are scared of. People don't know. So it's, you know, it's very, it's something, you know, I, I think it's, 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 you know, it's scary. It's scary because you don't know what's going to happen. It's like when you, someone goes into an operation, they want to know okay, what's going to happen. What are you going to do? And what's it going to be like? People want to know what's going to be. What, and we don't really have a formula um, from experience um, as to what is actually going to happen. Uh, additionally, I think another reason why it's important to talk about this subject is because, in my opinion, uh, thinking and contemplating about our own <coughs> demise is perhaps the most powerful tool that we could use to motivate ourselves in our lives to accomplish more. If if you live with the with the uh, with the shadow of death, so to speak, hanging over you, right? You could be you get very depressed very quickly. So, uh, but. If there is, from time to time, uh, throughout the course of your life, you kind of recalibrate yourself and say, okay, wait a minute, I am going to die, everyone's going to die. What am I living for? What do I want to accomplish before that? When you, when you have the realization that this life is not forever, right, there's an end point that will motivate and spur you to try to accomplish more in life and try to have more of a life that, uh, try to think of your life from the post facto, try to say, okay, what do I want to be remembered for? What do I want to accomplish? What do I want to have uh, a meaningful uh, in my life? 
uh, because it kind of you zoom out, so to speak, and you see the big picture. And when you're able to see the big picture, you're able to make better choices with what you're going to dedicate your life to. Uh, we know that if uh, on Rosh Hashanah, for example, Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, uh, the high holidays, there's a strong emphasis from the uh, liturgy and the philosophy about death. A lot of the prayer, a lot of the a lot of, a lot of the experiences is is, is um, echoes the idea of of death. And uh, I once theorized that perhaps the reason why there's such a great emphasis on the idea of one's own demise on these high holies is because these days are days where we're going to try to reinvent ourselves. It's days which are auspicious for change. And the best way, the best tool that we could use to change, you know, to change our direction, our course on a grand scale or even on a specific scale in our lives, the best way to do it is to focus on your own demise. The second you have that, now I I want to stress that it's important to not live that kind of life, because you, you get depressed very quickly. But once, twice, three times a year to think about this, to analyze it, to contemplate your own death is a very, very healthy, uh, is a very healthy tool that you could use to, uh, to, to, you know, to spur a more meaningful life. It was a great quote uh, from a great speech delivered by Steve Jobs. Everyone loves Steve Jobs. Um, in 2005, he gave a commencement speech in, in Stanford. And he, and he spoke about this. He says that what motivates him is the, is the idea that he knows I'm going to die soon. I want to accomplish. What do I want to be remembered for? Right? Living with the fear of death or with the perspective of death. Right? He, he says this. It's a very, very, very wonderful speech. I would advise everyone. But he speaks about this. And he says that um, every morning he wakes up and says, what if this is my last day I'm going to live? Everyone would say, what do I want to be remembered for? And that he used to accomplish how, you know, as much as he accomplished. You know? It's a tool that we can use, hence it's, why it's important to know more about it and think about it because it could help us become more productive in our lives. Uh, another reason why thinking about death and what's going to happen afterwards is important because uh, this is a theme that we'll hopefully revisit again today. Um, life to have, to, life has meaning, life there's, has purpose only when there's consequences for what we do. If it doesn't matter whether or not I do something good or evil, if there's no consequences, then it doesn't. Then 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 then, then what I do has uh, has no purpose. For example, if Hitler and Mother Teresa right now are in the same state, well, then it doesn't matter if you do good or bad. Like purpose, there's no meaning in life because either way you end in the same place. So the idea of reward and punishment, which can only be after you die, this is an important point. Reward and punishment can only be after death. We'll see. We'll see as to exactly what when it actually happens. But reward and punishment, i.e., the consequences for your life's <laughs> actions, happen after you die. Hence. Before you die, as, you know, the fact that we're alive now, our life only has meaning because there's going to be something after we die. There's going to be consequences, good or bad, for what we do now after we die. So our life today has meaning, has purpose, because of what's going to happen after we die. 
So hence, it's another. It's a very important thing. It's not just oh, it's just not just for curiosity's sake. Oh, what's going to be like? Are we all going to die? It's just something you want to be prepared for. Right? There's a certain element of that as well. But it's important for us to realize that what we do today, right, our actions, our behavior today has value and meaning and purpose only because there's consequences for it afterwards. Okay, so, so that's the introduction. So it's an important uh, discussion. It's an intriguing, very uh, exciting uh, topic. Um, it's something um, that uh, everyone's curious to know about. What happens after we die? So I wanted to stop for a second and say, wait a minute. There's a certain assumption of that question. Every question has assumptions. Right? What's the assumption in the question? What happens after we die? The assumption gets you to heaven. Oh, that's for sure. That's one assumption. But it also assumes that we know what happens when we're alive, right? Okay. We know what happens when we're alive. We want to know what's going to happen after we die. And it also assumes that we know what's going to happen when we die. Means we, we, we're taken as a given, okay, we're alive now, we're going to die, and we want to know what's going to happen afterwards. Right? That assumes that we know what our status is today, you know, as, as you know, being alive, and also it assumes that it knows what it means to die. What I want to do is, is try to roll it back and analyze what is the state of man when they're alive, what changes when they die. What's the um, what's the mechanical what's the mechanical makeup of life uh, versus death? Um, does it make any sense, guys? Mm-hmm. Okay, so we're alive. We're gonna die. There's gonna change that's gonna happen that makes someone from being alive to being dead. And then there's the post facto. Okay, now after the death, they're dead. Now what happens to them? Okay, so anyone wants to maybe share some ideas? What does it mean to die? Well, the soul goes to certain realms and the spirit goes to another realm. The spirit is a motivator of the human system right now, the motivator of the soul, as it were, and the soul goes off into <laughs> best I can get all that. Okay, so there's a certain separation. Yes, there is a separation. Absolutely, this I would. This is a carrier right here. This body. The soul right now is connected to this world through its five senses. Okay. And, and if you die, it's no longer connected to. The well, the soul is the senses. The soul, I assume, is sort of connected to the body with the, the senses. That's how we interpret everything. With the this. soul is connected to the body via the senses. Or the, 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 the senses. The senses are connected are, to this world. The senses are 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 soul centric or body centric. Body centric. Body centric. Okay, so we have the bodies, senses. We have the soul, which is the spark, which is the energy, which is the which is the drive, which is the vision, so to speak. And then there's a certain separation. Now, how, how does the separation happen? So I think it's important to understand how this works. So we have a body and a soul that are fused together. Right? That's the definition of man. There's a body on one hand, physicality, and there's a certain spiritual element that gives that person consciousness, right? things that we are unique. Animals have bodies as well. Our body is not that unique. In fact, I would argue that there isn't any animal that's our size that can run faster and rip us up to shreds, right? Physically, man is very not impressive, right? What makes us unique is our self-consciousness, you know, our ability to communicate verbally and our ability to think, 
That will make, that's what makes us unique. Right? Physically, we're, we're not that impressive. Animals that are our size are much more impressive physically. Right? What makes us special is our soul. But the soul and the body are fused together, and there's a certain separation when a person dies and the body goes one direction, and the soul goes a different direction. They're separated. They scientifically proved it now, but when they had an actual person die on a scale, they had her laying on a scale, and she died, and she lost six ounces when she died. Is that the capacity of the breath in her human form? Breath? I don't know. I don't think so. No, I, I, six ounces of breath. I, I don't know. I don't know if we, if, you know, if we need to, you know, prove it. Like scientifically, but yeah, there may be some scientific evidence for this. Um, but the idea of a consciousness—that's something that we have that that can't be quantified. It's something which is, you know, how do you measure something that's spiritual? You know. Uh, either way, yes. Well, this, when we say soul, soul—I don't want to get too in, in, into too much of a specific conversation because then we may venture into the idea of Kabbalah, which I know nothing about. I don't profess to know anything about. I don't want to talk about it because it's Kabbalah. You know, Kabbalah is like the hidden Torah for a reason. It's hidden for a reason because people like me and you, it's hidden from us, right? Uh, but the basics of what I know is that when we say soul, we actually mean five different elements, right? Uh, nefesh, Ruach, Yesod, Chaya, uh, Yechida. Those are the five elements, uh, of a soul, what these mean, like the different levels of soul. I don't think that's really pertinent for our discussion. So yes, there's there's spirit and there's soul, there's nefesh, there's different terms. What's a nefesh? What's a neshama? These are different terms uh, for soul. Soul, ruach means a spirit, uh, higher and lower levels. I'm going to try to simplify it because that's what the Talmud does. The Talmud simplifies it um, and it calls it just a soul. Uh, no, it's not all the same. But for our purposes, uh, for our purposes, we're just viewing it as one entity. Okay. Yeah, it's one entity that may, it may, on a deeper level, be comprised of uh, multiple parts and there's uh, multiple values to it. And we're going to simplify it. We have a body. We have a soul. Yeah. Now, uh, when the body, when the when the body, uh, when there's death. Okay. So what happens? So we typically think, mistakenly so that the body dies and therefore the soul exits. What actually happens is that the soul leaves and therefore the life that the soul was giving to the body ceases and therefore the body dies. The body has nothing which gives itself life on its own. It's the fact that it has a soul that gives it life and vitality and continuity. You take the soul out and therefore the body dies. We think that, oh, he died of X, Y, or Z, right? Cancer, heart attack, a stroke, whatever. The body died. Oh, the body's dead. Now the soul leaves. In reality, it's the opposite. The soul leaves, and therefore the body has no, it has nothing to uh, give it, to, to give it, uh, to give it life and vitality. Um, we have a, a statement in the Talmud, just to prove this point. It talks about, we mentioned this, we might have mentioned this last week, we meant the first part of the Talmud. Didn't tell you there was another part. Ooh. Uh, there's three partners in a person. Remember we mentioned that last week, we were talking about parenting. Three partners in a person. Uh, his father, his mother, 
child's father, mother, and the Almighty. That's what we mentioned. That's how far we mentioned last week. The Talmud in Nida, I think it's 31a, breaks it down to more specifically. So what does the father contribute? What does the mother contribute? And what does God contribute? And it breaks it down very interesting as to the breakdown of the makeup of what the father contributes, what the mother contributes, and what God contributes. And then it has an addendum. It says, when a person's time to come, right, time to die, God takes what he contributed and he leaves what his parents contributed. I.e., the parents are given the body, God's given the soul. And the various elements. There's, there's ten different things that it's giving. But the soul and the life and the vision and the ability to hear all those things means all that software, so to speak, for the hardware of the body, uh, all that is taken away. And therefore all you have is, a, you know, is the, is the, um, is the hardware, is the body. And, that has, and then if, you know, if it doesn't have something to make it run, it just, it just starts disintegrating. Hence, uh, death is not that the body dies, rather the soul is withdrawn, and therefore the body withers away because the life that the, you know, the body's a piece of meat. That's what it is. A piece of meat rots unless, it ha- unless it's alive. What, what makes it alive? The soul. The soul's taken away. It starts rotting and decomposing and disintegrating immediately. Okay, so uh, when we're alive, we have a soul and a body. Um, when we die, the soul is removed, and all we have left is the body. Now, what is a soul? What's the definition from a soul? What's special about a soul? So, what we're going to do, as we always do, is find a Talmud, and Talmud's definition of what a soul is. And the Talmud says, once again, I need the 30B, uh, that we tell a small child, uh, get the context, a soul is pure. There's an element of purity that a soul has. How pure is it? What degree of spiritual, um, spiritual purity or perfection does a soul have? So the Talmud compares it to two other entities. The Talmud says, God is pure, the angels are pure, and the soul is pure. Think about it. There's a certain degree or certain element of spirituality that's within every one of us that's as pure, you know, is comparable, so to speak, to God. Think about how distant that is from physicality. From Life that we would call tangible or real life, right? Things that you can touch and feel, you can experience with your senses. Right? God is the most distant thing from our perception. We can't understand. We mentioned this, we talked about this a lot when we talked about God. The idea of God is foreign to us because it's just spirituality. It's not something you could draw borders to or see or touch or hear or feel unless, unless you're a prophet where there's a certain convergence of your physical and spiritual lives, worlds. But the soul is something which is so uh, distant and distinct from our ability to uh, conceptualize. And we have that within ourselves. What's our body on the other hand? What's our body? 65% oxygen, right? carbon, water. nitrogen. Wa- it's, it's simple elements, simple chemistry. It's, it's earth. Boron. Right? Some calcium, right? Uh, ca- carbon, oxygen, nitrogen, hydrogen. That's it. That, that's what it is. That's what our body is. And there's this fusion of the highest spiritual elements and the lowest physical elements. And those things are just marvelously mixed together. Mm-hmm. 
and you know the uh, the Hebrew word for man. What's the Hebrew word for man? Adam. Adam. So we know that in Hebrew, the a word underscores what that word, what the meaning of that thing is. Right? For example, the word for a word is the same word for a thing, because the word and the thing is the same thing. Uh, the word for a dog is kelev, which is the same word as like a heart, because a dog is just gives love. Right? And the Talmud often will say, will analyze a certain word and say, well, what does this, what does this word also mean? Because that will give us an insight as to the meaning of this said item. So the Hebrew word for man is Adam. What else? Uh, what else is? What does Adama mean? Adam, Adama, Earth. Earth, right? So man, on one hand, is Earth. On the other hand, Adam is Adame, which means I'm similar. And the Talmud says that man, on one hand, is Earth. Because man's body is nothing but earth. It's simple. It's nitrogen, carbon, whatever, you, you know, uh, a little bit of calcium. That, it's just simple matter that you can pick up from the ground. On one hand, that's what man is. Five nails and one box of matches. Yeah. Five. <laughs> and on the other hand, man is similar to God. Because man has a certain element within himself, him or herself, which is a soul, which is similar to God. And these things are marvelously fused together. And that's what, that's what we are right now. On one hand, we're just the simplest, most base, most lowest elements. Very simple, not very complex. You could you know, go to the drudge store and basically buy all that you need to make a human body, like for two dollars. Someone said, like you know, you need a couple of gallons of water. You know, a little. If you were to just take the elements, chemical elements of a human, you could buy it for like three or four dollars in, in a drudge store, basically. Uh, but is that what a human is? No, it's it's it's. But it's this marvelous fusion, and this is why there's so much tension in our lives. Like uh, we live lives of conflict because we are basically a walking um, dichotomy or walking oxymoron. Well, some people are just morons. I know. <laughs> I know. Uh, but we are. We you know we're just a series of of of, of contradictions. We have certain aspirations, uh, but we're being pulled down by our by our physicality, and all our life our life is just a series of dealing with this conflict. Uh, our soul is very unhappy, by the way. Our soul uh, feels violated being in the body. Every second the soul is in the body, it can't stand it. The, Talmud, the, the midrash actually says that every single second of a person's life, the soul tries to escape. And the Almighty has to force it to stay inside. This unity, this fusion of soul and body is not a very natural one. It's not a, it, it, does, it doesn't really go really well. Hence all the tension. Hence free will. Because we're placed in a situation where we have two warring elements each one of them is trying to fight for pole position, for, you know, for, for trying to fight for superiority. Our soul wants to engage, us to engage in our spiritual agenda. Our body obviously creates for us a very you know, complete agenda of its own. And we're thrown into the middle of this. On one hand, we have our desire for meaning. On the other hand, we have a desire for just wasting our life away, you know, either chasing money or chasing physicality, like living a simple, more simple life. And, and, and just we're thrust into that. 
The uh, 13th century is a wonderful book called The Chinuch. It's written by a fellow by the name of Rabbi Aaron Halevi. Who this guy is is still up, to, up for debate, as people don't know exactly which Rabbi Aaron Halevi it is. Uh, either way, it's one of the fundamental books written from the medieval times. It's a book about the 613 mitzvot, all the mitzvahs, and he gives a background. Account, he goes through mitzvah by mitzvah in order of the Torah. So he starts off from the first mitzvah, which is all the way in the beginning of Genesis, right? Procreation. And he says, okay, what's the mitzvah? What's it about? What's the meaning? What's it trying to influence us to do? What's the roots of the mitzvah? What are the, a little bit of the application of the mitzvahs? So he has this introduction. And he says that uh, there's three kinds of creations, of creatures, so to speak. There's angels. Angels are pure spirituality. There's animals, pure instinct, pure physicality. And then there's humans. Human is this wonderful fusion of the two. Bizarre fusion of those two of the two. And humans are the only ones that got Torah. Animals don't have Torah. Angels don't have Torah. Why is that? Because animals and angels are who they are. They cannot be something else. They cannot develop. You know, we can't have a good or a bad or a morally corrupt animal because they just are what they are. They are instinct. They are physicality. That you know, they they just follow instinct. Whatever the instinct, whatever the DNA tells them to do, that's what they do. Angels, same thing. Well, yeah, angels are spiritual elements, spiritual entities, but that's all they have. There's no challenge. There's no tension. Therefore, there's no growth. There's no regression. Humans are the fusion of the two. We have, on the one hand, our animalistic entities, our Adama, our ground of our Adam. On the other hand, we have our Adama. We have our, we have our, our angel-like uh, elements that are trying to you know, make us achieve the wonderful things of life. And we're with, we have those two, both of them together. And we could use the Torah. The Torah is the tool that we could use to gain clarity in this in this arena of conflict. The Torah is going to help us not lose sight of the fact that we have goals that we want to achieve, that we have uh, grand aspirations, that our soul has this agenda as well. Hence, the Torah is like a, uh, a uh, pencil sharpener, so to speak, to keep our focus, to maintain our perspective on life. Because man is this, is, you know, is this fusion of uh, of these two forces. Now, what would it what would it look like the um, the perfect man? In the, we're talking about we're still in man in his live state. What would what would that person look like? How would the soul and the body be? Uh, what would the relationship be, be be between the soul and the body? Harmonious. Har- harmony. How would that be? How would you create harmony? Through the Torah study. Well, well, what would that do to the body? The body and the soul are sworn enemies. body has an agenda that does not at all, is not at all compatible with the soul agenda. There, there seems to, they're like the Israelis and Palestinians. <laughs> they just, they don't have the same, it's just, they're enemies. Sorry, I didn't mean to bring in the po- po- geopolitics into the discussion. Mm-hmm. Where God took him. Okay. So, I don't know. I was just kind of always thinking about that. Okay. Because maybe he had that harmonious diffusion. What would a person do to make harmony? Look, 
we talked about it before, right? We did. Those needs of soul and body are met, and therefore there is no conflict between the two because there is no. Yeah, but there the, the, the is such an ingrained friction that there has to be a change one way or the other. I love that. I was like not sure if I'm going to bring this all in, this whole point. I was like debating last night as a parent of the class. I'm like, should I bring this in or not? Because I had this wonderful discovery over the Passover uh, uh, holiday. And it's, there's a few different points here, so it might be a little bit hard to follow. Cause it might, and I might not say it so coherently. Um, Moshe, so you said Moshe. Moshe is the greatest man that ever lived, right? What was Moshe like? What do we know about Moshe? Okay, well, not the biographical. Okay, well, he was first prince. Yeah, but if we remember the bi- biography, what do we know about his accomplishments? What do we know about about his development, his spiritual development? So, we, so I'm going to give you fill in a few uh, interesting points. We know about Moses uh, at the end of Exodus. I don't, know, I don't know if people know this that much about Moses, but um, if you read Exodus in the end yeah. of Exodus, Moses um, had to wear a mask. Don't remember that? No. Because the he radiated with. Oh, yes. Yeah. After coming out. The Jews sin. Moses advocates for the Jews. He has this amazing transcendental experience. He says, God, show me your face. He put, like, it's, it's, if you read that, you're like, what is, what is going on here? Like, you feel like you're reading Kabbalah. Like, like. And then at the end, Moses puts on a mask. And it seems like for the last 40 years of Moses' life, he, we don't know that he took her off. His face was shining like the sun. The Talmud additionally says that Pnei Moshe Kipnei Chama, the face of Moses is like the face of the sun. There was something so radiant about him that his face was like the sun. So let's put that on the side. What else do we know about uh, our souls? So we know that there's going to be a world called the world to come. We don't know much about this world to come, but what we do know is... We have a few Talmudic statements that I want to put together here. If I'm getting more confused, you could just ignore me until I'll say to turn back the switch on, okay? So you could turn the switch off. I'm going to say it really quickly because it's, it's a little bit complicated. The Talmud says that all of the prophets only foretold what's going to be like when Messiah comes. But for the world to come, an eye doesn't see it. I in low rasa. An eye doesn't see it. An eye cannot experience it. I mean, you, cannot, you can't see it. That's one thing it says. Another thing it says, that uh, that during the world to come, the sun, the light of the sun is going to be diminished. Why? Because every, all the tzaddikim, all the righteous people, they're also going to have such brightness. And their brightness, um, in the, the, the sun's brightness in comparison will be diminished. The sun itself, its light will not be diminished. Rather, in comparison to the tzaddikim, to the righteous people, uh, who's... Uh, who will have a countenance of such brilliant brightness, therefore, uh, in comparison to that, the sun will seem to be like it's less bright. Um, Moses, in this world, achieved a level of his soul being the primary force, right? Pole position, right? driver's seat of his life. Hence, his soul was like, was like unmasked, so to speak. In this world to come, it's a world 
where there's no bodies. All you have is souls. An unmasked soul is something that we cannot even experience. We can't even see. We can't even describe it. It's like looking at the sun. You can't do it. It's a, it, it's a point where your senses do not have any control over. You cannot describe it even. The, the, the prophets, when they're foretelling about this time, they can't speak about it. Right? All they can talk about is, is the times of the Messiah, which is something which is still uh, experienced by our senses. But in the world to come, it's just souls. We don't have vernacular for, the, for that kind of experience. Looking at the sun, you cannot, your, your senses are limited. Try looking at the sun. Try doing the sun stare. You can't do it. Why not? Because the sun is an example of a limitation on your physical uh, senses. Moses had perfected his body to such a degree that his body was on par with his soul. Hence, there was nothing masking his soul. He had an unmasked soul. He was living here in this world the way people will live in a, in a world that doesn't, there is no body, i.e. so bright. There's something so bright, something so indescribable. He had to wear a mask. Why? People can look at him. They look at the sun. But point being is that Moses reached a level of parity that his body and the soul were one and the same. His soul was indeed not trying to escape from his body because his body was the same. Was, there was absolutely no conflict. He had perfected his body to the degree where his body and the soul were one of the same. Hence, the, 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 this body was not, was not uh, masked in the soul, and therefore it, the, the result was just something which is so beyond the comprehension of, of physical senses, yet to wear a mask. Interestingly, if you look at the last Midrash in Midrash Rabbah, the Midrash talks about Moses' death, and it's, there's a very long dialogue as to Moses saying, I don't want to die, and the Almighty saying, angels, and Moses fighting with the angels and saying, get out of here. And eventually God says to himself, okay, I'm going to try to get Moses' soul. And he says, he's speaking, God's conversing with Moses' soul, and he's telling Moses' soul, come, come, come with me. He's like, no, no, no. The soul, the soul is saying, there's no better place for me to be than to be harbored in Moses' body. While we know that our soul cannot wait to leave, our soul cannot stand being uh, harbored in our body. Okay, now you can turn your uh, antenna back on. Point being that um, the perfect person will achieve harmony because in our life, through the Torah, we can use these tools to perfect our body and make our body, elevate our body, make it more soul-like, i.e. have the soul influence the body and not the body influence the soul. Does that make any sense? Makes sense. Okay. So... We are told Maimonides made this declaration that will knock your socks off. He says every single person in the world can be like Moses. Every single person in the world can be like Moses. Now, important caveat. That doesn't mean that we can actually be like Moses. What it means is, is that we can reach our full, full potential like Moses reached his full potential. So yes, our full potential is infinitesimally small compared to what Moses did. Uh, but yes, each one of us, we're much, we have much smaller souls than he had. We had a much uh, smaller sphere of potential accomplishment than he had. But we too can maximize ourselves. You know, in our own lives, you know, living in our own world, we are limited a- into the degree of, which, of what we can accomplish, at least in comparison to Moses. Uh, but uh, with regards to what we can accomplish, we can maximize that like Moses did. Now, does the soul grow... 
Because, I mean, you take Moses, first of all, he killed this guy in the Egyptian camp, and you're not supposed to take a life and all that sort of thing. And uh, uh, he was a sheep herder and all that sort of, just an average guy, uh, more or less on, on lamb, if you will. And uh, so now he's got this magnificent soul that radiates forth. Does a soul grow in a person? Uh, but uh, your assumption is one that I would I would disagree with. Moses is being a regular person. The Torah may give us, you know, the Torah admonishes one person more than anyone else. You know that you look at the whole Torah. There's one person that's admonished more than else, and I'll probably I, I haven't done the math, but I would guess that if you were to take all the rebuke, all the consternations in the Torah, and you take the ones that are directed at Moses, I think that would be more than the rest of all the other condemnations and consternations in the Torah combined. Okay. If you were to just read the Torah, you'd say, wait a minute, this guy Moses is being rebuked more than anyone else. He must have been this miserable dude. <laughs> but it's, the Torah clearly says that, no, this was the greatest person that ever lived or ever will live. So, uh, so what does that mean? It means that the Torah is very, very delicate in its treatment of Moses because he's on such a high level therefore he's treated that even the slightest, slightest, slightest slightest mistake that he could have made is blown out of proportion and so much so that you'll see that God says to Moses, how come you don't believe me? You don't have faith. Really? Moses doesn't have faith? It just means that any slight mistake, it could be ever so slight so slight that if we did it it would be as if we did the biggest miss in the world but Moses did it, and therefore it's blown out. Uh, look, uh, Moses, you know, Moses did it. Yes, it was a mitzvah, but it had something slight, 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 maybe some sort of intention, the slightest of slightest of intentions that was maybe not 100% perfect. And the Torah says Moses doesn't have faith. So yes, Moses is treated differently. We cannot read the Torah and the Torah scripture of Moses with a very simplistic understanding. Yeah, so yeah, that Moses also wasn't, you know, was was born with a body, like we have a body, and that body was not perfect. And through the course of his life, you know, he he obviously was working, you know, all day and all night on it. Okay, so let that we pretty much understand now what a what a, what a person is before they die. Okay, everyone's like, wait a minute, this is like a bait and switch. The class said, what happens after you die? We haven't even discussed it once, and it's already nine forty ten forty eight. What is going on? Okay, so let's get to the primary discussion here. So we know what person is before they are before they die. They're a body and a soul. And if we were to look at two people, every person has their own unique mix of body and soul, and the relationship will be different because the greater the person is, the more they're using their soul to influence the body and elevating the body. And Moses, the greatest person ever lived, whose body was on par with the soul. There could be the opposite, right? There could be someone who's soul is influenced by the body. And not only is the body not being elevated, the soul is being dragged down. The soul is being influenced and sullied by the body. So yes, you may start off with a pure soul, but your job in life may be to guard that soul in its purity. Don't let the body influence the soul to downgrade the level of the soul. Now, soul is separated from body. Is that going to be the same for everyone else? Death, is it the same for everyone else? 
So let's let's hear what the Talmud says. The Talmud, I'll give you the source again if you want to check it up. It's in Brachos. Brachos is the very first um, book of the 63 books of the Talmud. And the Talmud is on 8a. It's about 50, 50% through, through the page. And it says something like this. There are, there are 903 different kinds of death. In the United States, we have six tax brackets. The Torah is telling us that there is 903 death brackets. 903 different ways to die. Now, this doesn't mean... Uh, uh, this doesn't mean actual ways that, you know, what we perceive as, as, uh, as death. Rather, separation of soul and body, there's many, many different layers of how, or, or different ways of how that could be. Okay. What else does it say? <coughs> the best form of death is called Nishika. The worst form of death is called Askra. Okay, tell us more. Astra, the worst kind of death, is like separating thorns from wool. You have thorns, they're in wool, it's knotted together, and it's a big deal if you want to separate them. You have thorns that are stuck in some wool, the wool's very thick. The the thorns get everywhere. There's enmeshment of the thorns and and the wool. Separate them is a very big deal. That's the worst kind of death. What's the best kind of death? Nishika. Nishika is like pulling a hair out of a glass of milk. Very little friction. It seems like very seamless, so to speak. So that would be the best. And then probably the the 901 in the middle are somewhere, are varying degrees. How much was your soul influenced by the body? How much did you contaminate your soul, so to speak, by making it one and the same of the body, by letting the body influence the soul. If your body, if, if your soul understood that it has to maintain its purity, it has to remain distinct, your goals in life, right? What are you going to try to do? Are you going to give preferential treatment to the soul? Are you not going to let it get entangled uh, by the body? Well, then death doesn't seem to be that difficult. The body and the soul, they're kind of separate, so to speak. The soul is, 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 was not influenced by the body so much, removing it should be very, or shouldn't be that difficult. On the other hand, if uh, at the other end of the, uh, of the equation, you have someone who didn't make uh, their soul a priority in the life. In fact, they let the soul just wither away and become less and less of a force and, the, and became just totally entangled in one big mix of soul and body with, the, you know, the soul's vitality was, you know, growing more and more diminished over time and the body was just taking over and swallowing it up. And now you have a soul, these thorns that are stuck in the middle of this mess of the wool and pulling it out is a very, very difficult thing. Yes? So basically, if you um, live a good life and you follow Torah and do what you're supposed to do, then you should have an easy death. And if you're evil and corrupt, then you should have a horrible death. That's what it indicates. Okay. Now, does this mean, uh, is this physical? Or it seems like it's pulling the soul out of the body. It seems like it's a much more sublime kind of experience. Right. Um, but but this is this is another interesting point. It says that the way you live your life will determine what kind of experience you have when the soul is actually taken away from you. Right? The death, which is taking away the soul out of the body, 
that is, is not, not all deaths created equal. Right? Depending on what kind of life you live, what were the priorities, what were the morals, what were the values, what was the agenda, what was the perspective, right? What was important to you? What did you spend your time with? That will that will determine what kind of soul you have and how that soul has interacted with the body. And therefore the removal of it is very much dependent on what kind of life you actually lived. Okay, so that's what death is. So we see that we, we see the very clear line between the way someone lives and the way someone dies. What about after death? What happens next? So we have now the soul separated from the body. The soul could look very differently than the way it was inserted. You have a pure soul. It's so pure, it's compared to God in a certain sense. It's compared to the angels. It was inserted into a body. 70, 80, 90, 150 years later, it's removed from the body. Now it's time to analyze the soul, you know. What kind of soul do we have? Is this a thorn or is this a hair? Right? Is this something which you know was preserved, was maintained in its purity or not? What happens to the body? Now we have a human. The son of the human looks a little bit differently. We talked about a human as being a fusion of a body and a soul, and now we have a separation of the two. Uh, and now we're talking about the next phase of a person's existence. Now we know the body. The body is interned in, into the ground. Very important uh, in Jewish life and Jewish law to not be cremated, uh, because, as we'll see uh, in Jewish philosophy, there's the idea of resurrection. Right? You may still need that body, uh, and I cannot guarantee that this is true. But there are those that would say that if a body is actually not properly maintained after. Uh, it's death, then they may have a harder time actually being uh, reused again as a, as a body come resurrection time. Either way, the body's put into the ground and we're not focusing on the body. Everything that we're talking about henceforth, after death, we're focusing on the soul. Any discussion of what happens after you die only revolves around the soul. The body, placed into the ground, it starts disintegrating immediately. It starts decomposing immediately. After 45 minutes, the body is, is cold. The body, after a, a day, the body starts, starts smelling, and it's just, you put it into the ground, and it's going to be eaten up by worms, and that's it. Yeah, you know, at least for now. What about the soul? What happens to the soul? What happens to the consciousness? Right? That, that feeling of self-awareness, right? which is not something which is unquantifiable. Being aware of yourself, that is a soul experience. Consciousness is the soul. The consciousness stays on. It continues to exist. Now, you cannot experience things. You don't have senses anymore. Senses are the body. The body is put into the ground. The body is hardware that no longer works. You no longer have sensory appreciation of things, but you still have awareness. You still have consciousness. You're still self-aware. Now, what's going to happen with the soul? Where does it go? What does it do? What happens to it? Is there judgment? Is there fiery hell? What does it mean, fiery hell for the soul? Is there peace? Is it... Uh... I'm just guessing. I'm thinking... You're guessing, yeah. That keeps it there until um, the resurrection. It just stays around, just like waiting in the waiting room. Yeah. I maintain it's refurbished. It's refurbished. Yeah. I had read that it's also... 
Reunion. Okay. So, uh, so we just have three answers. Mm-hmm. We just have three. Number one, it waits. Number two, it's refurbished. And number three, it's reused. But yeah. that's what three major religions says. Hinduism reused, right? Refurbishing or reused. It's Christianity and Islam, more or less. Okay, well... Uh, well I think Judaism does have a tenet that believes in reincarnation. So my guess is that it goes back to the central portal and when you reincarnate into your next life mission. Um, but I like that we have three different answers. Because uh, is it possible that all three are true? Of course. It may depend on what the soul <laughs> looks like. We said this soul went impure. The body's the soul just is inserted in the body. It's pure. It's like God. It's like the angel. It's totally pure. Your job in life is to preserve that purity, and in fact, to use that purity to influence your body. After you die, you're put into one of these nine hundred and three death brackets. Right? You hope that your soul is as unsullied, as perfect as it was at the beginning. But you may take the soul out and it may look vastly different, right? You have the two people that went in. They both had identical souls, or at least in, in a, their purity level was the same. After their life, depending on what kind of life they lived, their souls will be radically different, or could be radically different. Now, these souls are going to be, perhaps, are going, what's going to happen to them is going to be different depending on what they look like. Now, I want to interject with a... Uh, with a, a Talmudic, very, very interesting Talmudic discussion that we find uh, between Rabbi Judah the Prince, right? And we heard of Judah the Prince, right? Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, Judah the Prince. He was the Jewish leader in the end of the second century. So we have destruction of the Temple in the year 70, Bar Kokhba, 132 to 135, Hadrianic persecutions, 117. I'm trying to give, give you a perspective of where we are. The year 180, we have the Mishnah being written. The Mishnah is, is, is um, uh, it's a very tumultuous, I don't get too much of a history lesson, tumultuous time for the Jewish people. They're uh, being uh, decentralized. Uh, the, uh, the authority, the unification of the Jews having a certain um, court in Jerusalem that mediates all the questions. Uh, is being disbanded. Uh, Jews are going to everywhere else in the world, primarily east to Babylonia and Mesopotamia. Either way, there's a great effort made to write down all the Jewish law. It's all collected, written down the Mishnah. Who oversaw that? Rabbi Judah the Prince, Yehuda Hanasi, otherwise called just Rabbi. If you open up a Talmud and you see Rabbi said, you say, wait a minute, which Rabbi? Lots of Rabbis. Uh, there's one Rabbi who's just called Rabbi because he was the Rabbi because he played such an important function in the perpetuation of the Torah by authorizing, overseeing, codifying the Mishnah. And he was uniquely positioned to do that because he was quite friendly with the Roman emperor of the time, Marcus Aurelius Antoninus. It was quite friendly with the Jews. And we have recorded in the Talmud very interesting dialogue that existed between Rabbi Yehuda Anasi, Judah the Prince, leader of the Jews, and Marcus Aurelius Antoninus, the Roman Emperor. Uh, for example, one of the discussions is, is when does a person get a soul? Very interesting discussion. At what point of the person's development does he get a soul? When does a person get a Yetzirah, an evil inclination? Why does the sun rise in the east and set in the west? Very interesting discussions. Uh, but the one that I want to talk about today 
is a question that Marcus Aurelius Antoninus, or as he's called in the Talmud, Antoninus, that was his Roman name, uh, he poses to Rabbi, to Rabbi, to Rabbi Judah the Prince. And he says to them, I have a question, and this question is something that you won't be able to answer. What's the question? The body and the soul can each exonerate themselves from retribution. Judgment. We know that there cannot be any meaning in life, any purpose in life. We established this already earlier. Unless there's judgment, unless there's retribution, unless your actions have consequences. Says Marcus, Aurelius Antoninus, I have a way out. I have a loophole. What's my loophole? The body and the soul can each exonerate themselves from judgment. How so? person dies. Body and soul are separated. The body will say, look at me. I'm in the ground, I'm interred, I'm like a rock, I'm useless. I didn't sin. How could I, look at me, I'm useless. I didn't sin, the soul sinned. Without the soul, look at me, I'm useless. Right? It would, it would re- deflect any, any judgment. The soul says, look at me. Ever since I was removed from the body, I'm hovering around like a bird. I'm also useless. I didn't sin, the body sinned. So each one of them could get away from judgment. The body says, I didn't sin the soul. So the soul says, I didn't sin the body, the body sinned. And you, who could you ever pin down uh, to be the receptacle of retribution for, uh, for the actions, the activities the person did? And the, uh, the implication is that a second, it's not possible to enact a certain judgment, it's not possible, then life has no more meaning. Because if your actions have no consequences, well, then there's no purpose in action, right? The Hitler and, and Mother Teresa, the same thing, same thing, right? Because they're not actually uh, brought to task or given reward for their activities. That was Antoninus's question. Responds Rebbe with a parable. He says, imagine you have a king, and the king has an orchard, and the orchard has very beautiful fruits. And he hires two guardsmen to watch, to guard, to make sure that none of the fruits are eaten, none of them are tampered with. problem is that one of the guardsmen is lame, cannot walk, and one of them is blind, cannot see. He can walk fine, you know, he just can't. And he says, you guys are the watchmen, you are the guards, make sure that no one eats from my, from my orchard. Fine, puts them there, goes away. And then the blind... Uh, I'm sorry, the seeing, the lame watchman says to the other guy, says, oh, you know what I see? I see the most beautiful fruits. I want to eat them. They look delicious. But I can't get there. So what do they do? He says, you know what? Give me a piggyback ride. And I'll direct you. You could walk, but you can't see. I'll direct you. And we'll, and we'll, we'll, we'll uh, and we'll, uh, we'll, 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 we'll go eat the fruits. So what happens? He climbs up on him. Right? And he gave him a right, he's saying, make a right, make a left. Eventually, they end up by the footstool, they start eating, and they, before you know it, all the trees are bereft of fruits. They go back to their watching spread. What happens? God comes. Oh, not God, sorry. I just, I just killed, the, killed the punchline. Uh, the king comes back and says, oh, where are my fruits? Where are my, where's my beautiful orchard? So the lame person says, look at me, I'm lame. I couldn't have gone there. I couldn't have eaten the fruits. How could I walk? I, I'm lame. I, I have no, no lights. There's no way I could have. It must have been the other guy. The blind guy says, it wasn't me. I'm blind. I couldn't have eaten them. It was him. So you know what, so you know what the king does? The king takes the lame person, puts him on top of the blind person, and judges them as one. 
says Rebbe, says Rabbi, said of Judah the Prince, says, so too, the body and the soul on their own cannot be judged. But what God is going to do is going to take the soul, reinsert it into the body, and they'll be judged as one. That's the story. And what, what, conspire to... Yeah. Conspiracy to commit fruitricide. <laughs> fruitricide. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, this, this piece of Talmud... This piece of Talmud, there's a lot of takeaways that, that could be drawn from this piece of Talmud. For example, uh, the obvious, I'm saying, it's, what's, what's obvious is, is that this is a picture of what our life is. You know, our life is, we have on one hand the soul. The soul has vision. The soul has perspective. The soul is not blind. It could see. It has vision. The problem is it can't do anything. It doesn't have the tools. It can't, you know, it's, 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 it doesn't have a way to enact its desire. The body, on the other hand, is very gifted with its, you know, with its, with its body, so to speak, but it doesn't have the vision. And our job, so that's that's who we are. We're a, we're a blind body and a lame soul, and we're mixed together. Our mission is one of preservation, preserve. Preserve these beautiful orchards. Preserve your beautiful... St- this is what you want. Make sure it stays like that. Make sure when I come back after 70 years, make sure I haven't tarnished this beautiful thing. Second takeaway. Third takeaway is that judgment only happens when body and soul are reunited. I.e., this idea of reward and punishment... This ultimate reward and punishment, which gives our life today meaning, only really happens at a later point in time, where after we're dead, we come back to life again. Our soul is once again reinserted in our body, and we're judged as one. That's clearly what it says, right? Uh, Our body and soul individually can only be uh, evaluated, but can actually be judged. The soul is once again reintroduced to the body, and then we could be actually judged. That's the first takeaway. But I also think that, you know, we think of life. And, you know, we're kind of thrown into here without a manual. And everyone wants to know, what am I supposed to do? Like, what does God really want from me? What am I supposed to accomplish? Where, Where do you start? And what this story, what this image is telling us is that, in reality, our job is that of preservation. It's not to accomplish something, not to get somewhere, rather to stay where you are and not, don't screw up. Your job is to just keep it the way it is. If you just keep it the way it is, you, you, you make sure that the orchard remains untouched. You make sure that the beauty that you were given, that soul that was pure at day one, remains pure. Just keep it, keep it the way it is. It's, I think, comforting to know that we don't need to do something just to preserve. Now, that being said, this preservation will be a challenge because there will be lots of things that will try to tarnish our soul. To try to make it very difficult to have this, to, to preserve the soul in its purity. But I think on one hand it's calm to know, it's, it's comforting to know that ultimately our goal in life is just to maintain the soul and its purity the way it was given to you on day one. Another takeaway from this piece of Talmud is that our body, what, what, who is our body in this, uh, in this grand uh, picture? Our body is the blind, the, the blind watchman, the blind guard. 
it could walk, it could do things, it could enact, but it doesn't have the vision, it doesn't have the perspective. What's the most dangerous kind of blind person? Exactly. You know, you have, well, sometimes you have like a, we have like our grandma, my wife Chaya's grandmother. She was deaf, but also, she's like, her senses are being diminished, right? You're getting old, you know? She lived me well. She's doing great, but, you know, and she was still driving. And that was like terrifying because she would like back up and like, and, you know, and that, that the most dangerous kind of, you know, the blind says, what do you mean? I can see just fine. And start walking through, that's very dangerous. Our greatest <laughs> danger in life is when we don't realize that our body is blind. Our body does not have that perspective, doesn't have the vision. And it's trying to do things, it's trying to drive the car, when it has to realize you're blind. If you're driving the car, disaster will ensue. And, but, our, but our body thinks that it can see anything, it thinks it has, it thinks it has the perspective. It's like the, you know, the old grandfather who says, I could drive? What do you mean? I was driving before you were born. Before your dad was born. <laughs> right? And that's very dangerous. But our, our, our body is that, is that old blind person who thinks he can still drive. And that's our danger in life. We have to realize that the, the soul has the vision. The soul has to be in the driver's seat. The body is the tool that should, uh, should, should be used to enact the soul's uh, vision. Um, and lastly we see that the actual judgment of the person is only when the soul is reunited with the body. So what we just created for us is we know what uh, life is, body and soul, the challenges, the conflict, the friction. We know what death is. Death is just removal of soul from body. That can be vastly different for different people depending on how their soul and body interacted when they were alive. Who influenced who? Did you let your soul become sully with the body? Well, then death is kind of a very painful experience. Otherwise, maybe not. So we know what life is. We know what the actual activity of death is. And we know what's going to be afterwards. There's going to be resurrection. The body is going to be, once again, infused with the soul. And then there will be judgment as one. What happens in the interim? After someone dies, before they're resuscitated. Um... So like everyone mentioned, one of three things can happen. One of three things can happen. That's important. Reward and punishment, ultimate reward and punishment, which is what gives our life meaning, is only given to a person, to a human. What's a human? A human is a body and a soul. Hence, after someone dies and the body and soul are separated, there cannot be reward and punishment, ultimate reward and punishment. That only happens afterwards, after the person is uh, after the next phase of, of the world of existence happens when the body is uh, once again infused with the soul. But in the interim, yeah? Just to make sure, this is where the fundamental difference between Judaism understanding after death and Christianity, right? Where your soul just goes to the heaven of those. Yeah, well, in Christianity, from my uh, unlearned, I'm not such an expert in Judaism, much less... Uh, well, I guess, well, I guess technically, you know, you know more than most people. But uh, from my understanding of Christianity, is after you die, you either go to heaven, which is the, uh, which is the reward, ultimate reward, or to hell, which is the ultimate punishment. So the judgment is meted out right away. Yes, uh, and in Judaism, what's clear is that that yes, we do believe in heaven and hell. You know why? Because because that's once again was pilfered from us by the Christians. Uh, this is an idea. This is brought down uh, thousands of years ago. You have 
verses that are 2,400 years old that talk about heaven and hell. That being said, we don't believe as heaven as being a reward. Because heaven is just for the soul. The soul, uh, the judgment can only happen afterwards. So we view heaven as being a very lovely waiting room. Someone said that. Someone said that after you die, you're just waiting. You're sitting around waiting. And that's kind of the best thing that can happen after you die. After someone dies, their soul is going to be evaluated. Okay, what kind of soul is this? Right? What kind of, what happened? To, did the soul accomplish what it needed in life? Did it maintain its purity to you know to at least the you know to a certain extent? If so, then great. You know, so it accomplished what it needed to accomplish. It needn't be reinserted into this world once again. That being said. Sometimes if a soul just perfect, doesn't need any refurbishing, doesn't need any whitewashing, well, then it's just put into this glorified waiting room. We call it heaven, Garden of Eden, right? It's paradise. What it is, basically, is a glorified waiting room. We're waiting for the world to reach its next phase of existence. That's the best thing that could possibly happen to you after you die. The second best thing is you go to hell. Whoa, wait a minute. That's the second best thing? Yes, that's actually a very, very, very good place to end up. Why is that? Because going to hell, once again, it's very important for us to rid ourselves of the Christian belief of what hell means. Rather, we have to believe what the Jewish belief is, that it is uh, hell is given to people whom have accomplished what they need to accomplish in life. Their soul has maintained a certain level of purity. It basically did what it needed to do. Just there's a little bit of blemishes in the soul. The soul is not that perfect here, what was removed from the body. It has a little bit of schmutz on it, a little bit of dirt in it that needs to be power washed. Hence, it needs to be power wash. We call that hell. Once again, it's very important to not mix the two theologies together. Uh, and we call it, and that is a soul that accomplished what it needs to accomplish. It needn't do it. Start from point A all the way again. And it's it's not perfect, so it needs a little power wash. Now, in Jewish philosophy, hell has a endpoint. There's a maximum amount of time that someone could be in hell for. What's that maximum time? Anyone knows? One year. I once uh, mentioned in this class, I believe, I don't know if it was this class, I had this wonderful uh, epiphany that I might have mentioned here. So hell is a maximum of one year. Why one year? <laughs> why, 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 why one year? Why would it be a maximum? Why not a year and a half? Why not six months? Why is that the maximum? In fact, we know that uh, uh, after someone dies, after a relative dies, so there's a, a mourning period. And there's obviously the shiva, which is a certain, you know, a certain the beginning of it. But then there's a whole year of mourning. Now we only observe eleven months of it. Why do we only observe eleven months of mourning? Because we assume that the person who dies is not someone who's so wicked that needs eleven, uh, twelve months of cleansing, so to speak, in 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 hell. So we what say eleven Hitler? months, huh? Oh, what about Hitler? What about Hitler? Hitler? No Jew. So basically, ninety-nine percent. All of us are going to go to this. Uh, who says 99 months? Who's said, the 99%? I said, I said why 99%? Because we're all, no one, most we're of us are not perfect, perfect people. Uh, well, that's the hope. The hope is that we end up there. Uh, the hope but, is that we end up in hell for yeah. a year? No, no, up to a year. Now, why, so, so why is it up to a year? So this is my theory. I haven't proven it, but I have a theory as to why it's a maximum of, of a year. We're told in the Talmud in several places that we have 613 mitzvahs. 
248 of them are positive mitzvahs, do X, Y, or Z, right? Gifts, Dr. Weird, sits this, observe Shabbos, etc. Uh, 365 of them are negative. Don't do this, don't, do, don't steal, don't murder, etc., right? 365 says the Talmud. Uh, 248 is corresponding to the 248 limbs that we had in a person. We mentioned this uh, in a previous class. 365, why 365? Corresponding to the days of the year or corresponding to the sinews in the body. I theorized, it's a theory of mine, a disclaimer, that perhaps the reason why there's a maximum of 365 days that a person could be in what's called Gehenna or hell is because every day that a person's there, they need their perfecting or their rectifying one sin that a person could have possibly accomplished, uh, 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 possibly did in their lives. Hence, if a person committed all 365 sins and didn't repent for them, then they need a maximum of 12 months, of 365 days, to fix that. But even if someone did all 365, well, then for a year and after a year, there's no, nowhere else, there's no more else that's needed. That is, that hell in Jewish philosophy means a time where the soul, the almost perfect soul, needs a little bit of perfection, a little bit of power washing, refurbishing is the word that you used that I liked, where Perhaps every day a certain element of imperfection is uh, focused on, and therefore there's a maximum of 365 days of perfection. So the perfection. soul focuses on it? You're not put back in physical body? No, 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 no. We're not up to there yet. We're, we're, we, after a person so dies... So just mulling over this and... Huh? No, no, no. We have, okay. no the res- he's not to the resurrection. I understand yeah. that. So your soul, you're put in, you have up to 12 months, and... You're fixing these imperfections? Yes. Yes. Okay. As a soul? A bodyless yes. Bodyless soul. soul. Yes. Okay. Bodies in the ground. Bodies in the ground. <laughs> 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 uh, and that's the second best thing that could possibly happen to you. It right. means that your soul pretty much accomplished what it needs to accomplish. Uh, it has some imperfections, hopefully less, uh, and therefore hopefully less time that it needs to be power washed, needs to be cleansed, or refurbished. Either way, after that period, be it a week, be it 365 days, either way, it too moves to the glorified waiting room where it just sits there and waits. And very pleasant, uh, the, the superlatives are kind of a pleasant place to be, uh, as opposed to hell is kind of a less pleasant place to be. Either way, you're there and you're waiting to be reinserted into your body. Uh, the worst outcome that could happen after you die is where the soul did not accomplish what it needs to accomplish. It did not maintain its level of purity that it was tasked to maintain. Right? It didn't guard the fruit tree. Right? It didn't guard the orchard. It has to go once more back to back to point A. Now for us, important, we think, hey, not so bad. I kind of like this world. I kind of like it. I have my chums. I have, you know, people, for us, it's hard to experience the kind of uh, pain that the soul undergoes when it's reinserted into the body. We have a body-first approach. Hence, our body's very happy in planet Earth. We don't want to die. But once our body's influence are stripped away from us, all we have is a soul approach. The soul to the soul, the worst possible place to be is on planet Earth. Right? Like we said, the soul wants to escape every second. The soul it cannot stand it. It's incredibly painful for the soul to be in, in, you know, in, in, in a body and in, 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 on a physical world. 
So the worst possible situation or a result is where a soul did not accomplish what it needs to accomplish. It needs to once again go back and start from point A. And that seems to be, like for us, it's hard to imagine it because our body first approach seems to like the earth very much. But if we were for a second able to switch gears and have a soul first view and a body, we would say, oh my gosh, I can't, you know, it's terrible being here. Like, I want to leave every second. That's what, that's what our soul's thinking right now, as we're sitting here. Well, maybe not right now, because we're studying Torah. Uh, but So Hitler was then reincarnated? No, I didn't say that. Okay. Your soul. I didn't say that. There is an idea called Karis. Karis is the idea where the soul is just... The uh-huh. It's, uh... The yeah, it's just... We're talking about most people. Uh, it, it, Hitler always comes into this conversation. It's like, well, wait a minute. Right. No, it's, we're talking about most people. So, uh, obviously, the, uh, the, uh, um, the Hitlers of the world are not reincarnated. Uh, they, their soul has become so unusable, so to speak. You know. I'm not sure I can agree with your philosophy that he would not have been reincarnated. That he committed a, a tremendous evil, yes. <laughs> that doesn't mean that he would not be capable of when the body passes and the soul, excuse me, when the soul is removed and the body passes, does not mean that he could not be capable Maybe. of understanding the degree to which he... Well, for sure he understands that. The question is sure. if he's given another shot. Maybe. Uh, this. Uh, let's put this question aside. Maybe. Uh, okay. it, let's, let's keep it as an academic. I, I, maybe I'll do some more research about this. Uh, but either way, I'm going to talk about most people. Most people who are a mixture of good and bad, right? We, you know, we have our own struggles. We're trying to do good, you know. But once again, we, we, we're, we're, we're blind and, we, and our body's always driving. <laughs> Most people. I would keep the Hitler away from this discussion. Or the people that are called kares, which means that they're removed, they're excommunicated, whatever. Well, Most people. It, let's look at it perversely then. Hitler done the Jews a favor. He done the soul a favor. He got the souls up there a lot quicker. Yeah, well, you, this is the question that I was hoping someone would ask me. Say, wait a minute. Okay, if our soul can't stand this world, perhaps the best thing we could do is jump off a bridge. <laughs> right? But no, we still believe we want life because life is opportunity. After you're dead, you can no longer do any mitzvahs. Think about that. We're here, we could collect, like, we could cash in million dollar checks every second. Every mitzvah you do, the simplest mitzvah, you walk past a mezuzah and you say, goodness, God is over here. God watches over us. That's a mitzvah, and that's something that you can never get back once you're dead. So as difficult as it is for our soul, our soul to be here, it's a time for our accomplishment and opportunity. And we cherish that. Because this is something, once you go back, like once you leave this world, your opportunity for mitzvahs totally over. Whatever you accomplished, whatever you amassed, that's what you have. You have no, you have no more. Okay, so this concept obviously also applies to non-Jews, but are are they at a disadvantage because they don't study Torah? Are they judged by just the golden rule or their equivalent beliefs as to our mitzvah? What are they? Do they spend more time in the in the washing machine, so to speak? So, um, (laughs) (laughs) what you're so what you're bringing up is a very uh, important distinction that we have. Um, in our religion uh, as opposed to other religions because we don't believe that you can only be righteous if you're Jewish. We don't have that kind of view. Hence, we don't proselytize, for example. Uh, 
uh, uh, all other religions, I don't know all religions, but uh, the big other monotheistic religions, Islam, one of the basic fundamental tenets of Islam is Dar al-Islam and Dar al-Kharb, which means nation of Islam, you know that, and nation of sword. They have a very, uh, in the fabric of their religion is the idea of you have to be part of Islam. You have to accept the tenets of Islam, or else you're nothing. You're sword, whatever. Uh, whatever the application of it is, it's you know it's very uh, clear as to what there's only one way to go. Uh, Christianity has that as well. You have to accept Christianity, or else eternal damnation. In Judaism, we say that the righteous of the of the of the of the nations of the world have a portion of the world to come. They could reach a level where their their souls entitle them, as the result of their merits, to the world to come. We haven't even spoken of the world to come, but it means to, where their souls could actually experience God, have the ultimate pleasures. That is possible for for non Jews as well. Absolutely. Uh, now, non Jews don't have Torah, so uh, they'll have a harder time. But then again, they don't have the same commandments, and therefore uh, their their room for Accomplishment and their room for regression is is a little bit is more narrow. So you know they don't have as many restrictions as many requirements, um, you know. But they could they have mitzvahs and they they are they're they're instructed to be to be righteous and they're instructed to, you know, to, to have a functioning society and the seven Noahide laws. And if they follow that, then absolutely they have a portion of wealth to come and their souls are likewise judged as per what their expectations were for those souls. Okay. Um, okay. So everybody's cleansed in a, in a maximum of a year. Is that basically what you're saying? Huh? Everybody's power washed. Not everybody. I said there's three things I, that can happen. I, I yes, but I, people I, that are power washed for maximum of a year. Yes. Including non-Jews. Uh, I, I don't know about that. Uh, I, I would assume. I would. Assu- I would assume so. I don't know that for sure. I, I, why not? They too have souls. They too have expectations. Much less than like seven mitzvahs, but those are expectations that they have. If they follow their expectations, then you know their soul has what it's kind of was expected to accomplish, and they too could be, to, you know. Well, the Catholics have something they call purgatory, which is yes. kind of like a washroom, so to speak, where people go to who haven't quite made it to the heaven. They say, yeah. Once so it's again, kind of weird. it's kind of uh, once again, it's another borrowing, yes, another yes. plagiarism. I want to share a very interesting uh, idea. I, there's, there's a lot to talk about. One, one yeah. follow-up. Yes. Um, if, if my soul is cleansed in a maximum of a year, what's my incentive to, to really... Everything's going to be all right. You know what I'm saying? I'm going to go through Yeah, well, it's, it's... What's my incentive for think, think, about, think about it this way. I, we mentioned this a few times before, that while the end goal might be... The destination might be the same, you know. First of all, you don't know for sure that you're going to end up in 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 hell. So in this uh, uh, washing machine, as you called it, um, you don't know you're going to end up there. You want to make sure that you don't end up in the third and worst option of being coming back here. That's the worst. Um, that's the, you know that's what you don't want. Um, and if you're saying, wait, a minute, I kind of like it. Think about it this way. You know, who says you're 
be American. Maybe you'll be like Venezuelan or like African or something like that or Oriental. Like I was like thinking, oh yeah, I, I kind of like it here. We have internet. We have like running water. <laughs> I can I can do this again. Uh, but no, you know. So that's the worst. You want to make sure you don't end up there. Uh, that being said, it's a much more pleasant way to go to make sure that you're as perfect as possible. You do the work. It's much easier to do that power cleansing work here than there. And while the goal might be the same, you're, in, you, you, you're very much incentivized to try to make it as limited of a, of a, of a pit stop in that, uh, you know, that uh, washing machine. You still got a few minutes left, but you still got, there's still the judgment at the resurrection. Uh, how much? Can we go to 1143? Yeah. We can go until the kids go. Okay, so let, I want to share a few more other interesting things. Uh, resurrection. So the Talmud in... Uh, the last chapter of Sanhedrin, it, uh, all these matters are discussed there, by the way, all the sources. The story of Antoninus, for example, that's there. Uh, it asks the question about the resurrection. So it says, what's the source of resurrection? And it brings up about 15 different sources for resurrection. Uh, for all from the Torah. Sources, verses. And one of them it brings, this is actually from the Torah, from Proverbs, it says, I found this so interesting, I was going crazy for it, and I just had an, an, a, another insight that this morning I want to share with you. It brings a verse from Proverbs chapter 30. And Proverbs, it makes a comparison between two things that seem to be so opposite. Uh, a verse, and the verse reads like this, it says, a grave, Sha'al is a grave, the Otzer Rechem. Otzer Rechem which means Otzer is a narrow part of a Rechem. Rechem is the uterus, i.e. the narrow part of a woman's reproductive organs. And then Talmud says, wait a minute. What does a grave possibly have to do with a narrow part of a woman's reproductive organs? What does it have to do with each other? What's the, what's the, you know, what could possibly be the same? How could there be any overlap between these two things? A grave and the, the narrow part of a woman's uh, uterus? Uh, it says like this, it says, just like a woman's, narrow part of a woman's reproductive organ, something goes in and something comes out. So to her grave, the body goes in and something comes out. I.e., that when a person goes, its body is put into the grave, it's not the end. It's put there, but just like uh, insemination, right? uh, something goes in and eventually after time, something comes out. So too, the body goes into the ground, and eventually it will come out again uh, as a you know with re- resurrection. That's a source of one of the sources of resurrection. And it says a few other things. I was thinking, wait a minute. The Talmud just the Torah is just telling us something amazing. It's saying it's comparing gestation, right? uh, uh, conception. Something goes in. A baby is born. Something comes out. But there's that interim period of gestation. Right? There's nine months right, of, of, of development. Perhaps after someone dies, the body's put into the ground. Later on, there's going to be resurrection. But in the interim, there's also gestation, also development. Perhaps this is like the, uh, the idea of, of hell, of heaven, of, of, of development... What it really is is that the body or the soul, no, not the body, the soul is developed or progresses in a similar way to the way a, an embryo, a zygote, kind of develops into a baby. So it's it's like, brought into fruition. So it's almost like you, you 
I have a few more other interesting things. Okay, a little break in action. Hello. Hello. For everyone who's listening on this tape, we just had to move to a different room. Okay, we're in a different room. Let's continue where we're up to. Okay, so we were saying that um, perhaps like uh, the, this comparison of conception, gestation, and birth is kind of the same thing as death, perfection, and then rebirth in, in something totally different. That, you know, what, what goes in... What, what, a baby, what goes in and what comes out, it's really the same thing. Why? If you were to analyze the DNA, it's exactly the same thing. But how can you compare a zygote, which is, you know, if you want to see it, you have to put it under a microscope that expands it 100,000 times, and a baby. Yeah. They're essentially the same thing. Like If you were to, to, to measure it, it's the same thing. It's the same DNA. But it's a developed into something which is totally different. So our soul uh, goes in, so to speak, at death, and this process we call washing machine, purgatory, hell, Gehenna, whatever term we're going to use, what it really is is kind of the polishing or shaping or developing of the soul to it, you know, to to, to reach its full splendor uh, at 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 the resurrection. Uh, we're resurrected. What we do know is that at the resurrection we have a judgment. Uh, that judgment, uh, it's called that great day. Uh, many places in, in, in Jewish, uh, Jewish literature, that great day, this uh, day where uh, we're truly uh, going to be, we're going to be uh, judged. Uh, what we also have after that is something called the world to come, which is the ultimate reward is actually, uh, a, a, you know, we mentioned this um, in, a previous cla- uh, pre- in a previous class that the greatest uh, pleasure that someone could possibly experience is pleasure of experiencing God. And that will be uh, the reward for the, for the righteous after this judgment. So if we were to look at the timeline, we have uh, life. Our soul was given and put into our body with a certain mission preserve the purity of the soul, death, separation of taking the soul out of the body. After that, one of three things can happen. The worst is to start from, go back to point A, right, where the body gets, where the soul gets reinserted into another body. That's the worst possible uh, outcome. The best outcome, the other two good outcomes is where the soul kind of, kind of accomplished what it needs to accomplish, or at least, uh, you know, the, uh, enough it doesn't need to go through this one more time. Uh, it is either put into this waiting station or it is put, first put into this development station or washing machine or purgatory, whatever you call it, where it is cleansed. Uh, and then it goes back to the waiting station. We're waiting, what are we waiting for? For resurrection. Soul being reinserted into the body. The body is being used again. 
then we're going to have a certain judgment. Like we said, the body and the soul, like the, the lame person and the blind person, they're going to be judged as one. After the judgment, at a certain point in time, there's going to be the next phase, which is Olam Haba, which, like we mentioned, is something that we don't even know about because it's something we can't even perceive because it's a, a totally spiritual one. It's like, as we mentioned, it's Ayin Rasa, and I cannot see it. It's like looking at the sun. It's a place where our senses, where our physical capabilities do not have any... Uh, uh, any ability. We can't even use words to describe it. Everything that we see, all the goodness that's foretold, it's only up to that point. At that point, it's a looking at the sun, there's no ways for humans, there's no words that we can use to describe it. Right? We're like this, it's like the sun. Um, so that, so uh, that, that part of, of the reward is something that we don't really know much about. Um, what Maimonides does write about this, very interesting, if, uh, you're interested in reading it, I actually have a translation. It's very, very, very long, very long piece. Uh, but he gives an example. He says that, you know, if you have a small child, you, you, want, you want the child to study, to study Torah. The child doesn't want Torah. The child wants candy. So what do you do? You say, come study Torah and I'll give you candy. Right? The child studies Torah. Why is he studying Torah? For the candy. He gets a little older. He doesn't want candy. He wants nice clothing, fancy okay. shoes, Right? So you say, come study Torah, and I'll give you fancy shoes, I'll give you nice clothes, and the kid studies Torah. Why is he studying Torah? Not for the Torah itself, rather for the candies, the goodness that he'll get. He gets a little older, clothing, he wants cash. So you say, you know what, you study Torah, you get cash. He gets even older, what he really wants is honor, prestige, status. You say, study Torah, and they call you rabbi, they'll stand up when you walk into the room, you'll have this, you'll have that. Similarly, for us, when we're told about the goodness and the reward and this and that, we're never told about Olam Abba. We're never told about this world to come. Why? Because for us, we wouldn't value it. We're like that little kid. Right? We have a body-first approach. So as uh, humans who have a body-first approach, we cannot be tempted with Torah. We can't say, here's Torah. This is the best thing possible for you. The little kid says, I don't value Torah. I want, what I want is candy. What I want is clothing. What I want is money. What I want is honor. For us, we're not really told much about this world because it's spiritual delights. I'll say, you know what? I, what we could offer you is the greatest spiritual pleasure and it by far outweighs any physical pleasure. But as body first, uh, in our body first perspective, all we want is physicality. So whenever we hear about Messiah, we hear about Garden of Eden, we hear about resurrection of the dead, all these things, says Maimonides, these are the candies, the proverbial candies that were dangling in front of the kid and say, come study Torah, do good, be righteous because of this. Ultimately, what we really want is this world to come. But that's something which we don't, we don't value, we, we don't value because, because it's, it's spiritual and we're not spiritual first entities. That being said, the second we're able to experience it, if you were able to experience it for one second, if you were able to experience the world to come, experience spiritual pleasure, all physical pleasure will become meaningless for you. Another example of Jesus says, imagine you have a king who's controlling an empire. Right? And then you say to him, how come you don't want to go like, play, with, play, play, play with a ball like you used to when you were a kid? Let's, let's play catch. Let's, let's play handball off the wall. You know, for a kid, handball is very exciting. 
But once you've experienced a higher level of pleasure, it doesn't excite you anymore. Similarly, says Maimonides, for us, if we were to experience this spiritual pleasure, everything, everything else would seem to be so juvenile in comparison. So this ultimate uh, reward is something which is beyond the capacity of our, of, uh, of our experience. It's like looking at the sun. It's, it's our physical uh, tools do not have the capacity to experience it. But that's, that's what we look forward to. That's the ultimate pleasure. And for us, with our body-first approach, we might, uh, you might say, you know what, show me the candy. And there's plenty of candy. And we say that we have the Messiah, for example. Messiah is a wonderful time, time period yeah, that's going to be a certain reward. But in reality, the Messiah is just the candy that we dangle in front of the kids. Garden of Eden, this, 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 the idea of paradise, very, very, very popular in, you know, in, Jewish, in Jewish literature. Jews do good, you get paradise. You'll get wonderful themes, you'll have prosperity, you'll have health, you'll have all these things the Torah tells us. Those are not real rewards. Those are candies that we dangle in front of kids. Resurrection, you're about to meet your grandparents. Right? You're about to be, you know, to have, you know, to have a, a camaraderie and have this, be able to, you'll live after you die. Even that, that excitement, that's only something which is not the real fulfillment of the reward that, uh, that is uh, in store for us. What, really, what, what it really is, is something which is much, much higher, much more sublime, much spiritual, much finer, and never-ending. Spiritual pleasure is something that doesn't go away. Think about that for a second. Every pleasure that you could possibly have in this world has a shelf life. Everything. Because by definition, physical life has a shelf life. Always has to come to an end. All good things have to come to an end. All physical good things have to come to an end. In this spiritual world, this olam haba, this next world that we kind of talk, we talk about as the ultimate uh, pleasure, the ultimate reward, it's eternal. There's no, there's no cap. There's no limitations. And that's the ultimate. Uh, that's the ultimate. Uh, that's the ultimate reward. And the hope is that we can actually get there. We all hopefully get there. Uh, but the way for us to get there is in this world. Uh, as we're told uh, in the Mishnah, the Mishnah says that this world, compared to the next world, is like a corridor. It's a corridor. This is the world that we need to do our actions. This is the world where we perfect our soul and we train our soul. We enable our soul to be a receptacle for experiencing the pleasure in the, in the next world. Not to say that there is no pleasure in this world. Not to say that there is no reward prepared for us in this world. Yes, it, there is, but it's chump change. It's candy. It's, it's playing ball. It's getting fancy clothes. It's, it's, it's infinitesimally small compared to the ultimate pleasure. Yes, and we need it. It's important for us to think about that because we're body first, and as humans, we are body first. And, that, and, you know, that's, and th- that's, that's going to be a tool that we can use to, to spur us to, to further growth. But what we're really looking forward to is the next world, which is the ultimate. And what we do now, the actions that we do now, the perspective that we have now, the... Uh, the care and concern that we give to our souls now will determine what kind of a status our souls will have uh, you know, in the judgment, but also in the, you know, the world to come. We could do a mitzvah now, and this mitzvah will have tremendous repercussions in, you know, in the eternal world. Think about that. We do one mitzvah today. One mitzvah today, and we can have eternity for, uh, from that as a result of that.
we can nourish our soul in a, you know, in, in a time in our existence where our soul needs nourishment. We can feed our soul. And, you know, that's what this, the purpose of this world is. There's so many countless examples in, in Jewish literature where this idea is hammered home. Uh, for example, uh, it says like this, he who toils before Shabbos will have what to eat on Shabbos. He who does not toil before Shabbos, what will he eat on Shabbos? I.e., there's a time for work, for preparation, and there's a time for consumption of that preparation. This world now, where we are today as humans of body and soul, it's a time for preparing. What are we preparing? We're preparing our soul. Our soul for what? For Shabbos, for a time where our soul is going to have to consume spiritual entities. Right? And today, with our physical bodies, we could create a world that our soul could, uh, could live in, so to speak, when it's just uh, soul time. One example. Uh, today we do this, there's another statement in the Talmud, today we do it, and tomorrow we reap the rewards. This world is a corridor for next world. Prepare yourself in this world so you'll have what you'll have in next world. All these things are saying the same thing. In uh, this time period, when we're alive, is the time where we can accomplish. We could do. We could create. We can improve. We can perfect. The mitzvahs are the tools. They're going to help us perfect our souls, accomplish Torah, all these things. The, the, it's golden opportunities. Unfortunately, we're like the little kids. We want physicality. So what does the Torah say? You know what? Yeah, well, let's, let's dangle it. Just like that. That's the way. That's the way to. Tra- that's the way to train kids. That's the way to train us. Well, we have lots of good things to look, look for. We don't want to be thrown back into the into this world. We don't want to have to be reincarnated. We don't have to have to go through the purgatory of the washing machine, right? That's a nice little incentive that we could use. We have the idea of Messiah, Jewish dominion, Jewish sovereignty. We won't have to ha- deal with you know petty struggles. We all are going through challenging times in our lives, there could be a time where there won't be so much challenge. That is another thing to entice us. Resurrection. Who doesn't want to be around for that? We all do. Those things are very useful because they'll help us have clarity, have, have insight today to, you know, to try to uh, accomplish as much as we can. But ultimately, what we're really shooting for is this next world. Today's the time that we could, uh, uh, that we could impact ourselves for eternity. So that's that. That's uh, our life, our death, post facto, resurrection, world to come. That's basically uh, it. There's, other, there's a lot of questions. I know a lot, of, a lot of things come up. Like my mind has even talked about this. It's people always ask. It's like people are focusing on the wrong things. They're asking themselves questions like, hey, when I will be resurrected? Will, will, I, be, will I be naked? Will I be wearing clothing? <laughs> that, he's, like, he's like, people waste their, their time with these silly questions. But it's, you know, it's actually not so silly because the Talmud actually brings it down as a question. You know, Thomas says, well, after resurrection, will you actually, will someone die afterwards? Will they live? Will people be healthy? Or what if someone dies with a broken leg? Uh, will they have a broken leg when they're, when they're resurrected or not? Uh, what about uh, another very popular question? Is, wait a minute. Resur- you put the ideas of resurrection and reincarnation together. You say, wait a minute. It's possible that this is not my first body and not my fourth body. Maybe it's my 17th body. So I'm resurrected. Well, which, which body do I get? Do I get the first body, the last body, the middle body? Right? It's a different answer. So I'm going to say the first body, that's the original body. Everything else was just replica bodies or just you know, bodies that are necessary. Um, there are those that say it's the last body. That's the, last, that's the body that actually accomplished your, your task. That, that's your final body. Some say a composite. 
it's a, it's a mixture of certain elements of. And uh, the fourth answer to that question is that does it really matter? You know, a body is a body is a body. Does it matter what clothing you're wearing? Are you wearing the clothing you wore today for the class or the tuxedo you wore for your brother's wedding? Is that is that really important? No, a, a body is just clothing for the soul. So you'll have clothing for your soul as well. Uh, either way, uh, those are ancillary uh, questions and uh, topics very interesting. But I feel like uh, we sufficiently covered the topic, yeah? But technically, this could be my second go-around already. You know, like, in all likelihood it is. From what I know, this is, once again, venturing a little bit out of my uh, pay grade. Uh, but what I do, what I have heard is that uh, most of us is not the first go-around. In fact, I think none of us are. Um, I, can't, I can't confirm that because I had never seen the source for it. It's like, well, it's like Kabbalah. It's like the kind of things that you hear. About, like, I can't confirm that. But what I have heard several times is that for all of us today, we don't have... Uh, um, Yes. I'm a slow learner, so I'm <laughs> pretty sure I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> Makes sense. Late bloomers. Do so that's that. Does the soul retain memories of what's going on during the life? Whether it's uh, in a purgatory or is it in that waiting room in, he- in heaven? Does the soul have memories? Do, do, does it rem- remember you wanna, who you loved, your, who your children, the spouse were? Um, this is this is what means right now your soul right now. No, no. assuming the waiting room. What is in the waiting room? room. Is your soul like I believe I would say yes. I would say it's 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 you know I have a my grandfather writes uh, he has an amazing chapter in one of his books called Death. It's like preparing for death. You know what's the Jewish perspective about death and how to prepare for it and whatnot. Uh, so in it he has a sample last will and testimony tava. And he wrote the 1966, his first book, Ali Shur, chapter, uh, uh, volume one. Uh, and he, what's interesting, when he died in 2005, so this is, what, uh, 40 years after he wrote the book, so he had always had a, an envelope in his, in, his, um, in his desk that says, to be opened when I die. It's like, what's he going to say? What's he going to say, right? You know, his institutions and his books and his legacy and whatnot. So he opened, I remember I was there, like, uh, so he died uh, in Pesach, uh, nine years ago, and uh, someone quickly went and got this and says, well, what does it say? So the first thing he writes is, you should know that my real tzava, my real last will and testament was actually written, published in my book on Alei Shur, volume one, page 303. I'm like, so, I, so someone went and opened it, and like, boom! It's, you open it up, it says, to my children, my son and daughter, my children and my, my dear children. What? It's like, and then and you have to read a little bit about it. He's, it's in the chapter about death, and he's talking about, he says, and here's a sample of a, uh, here's a sample of a last will and testament, and testament. Either way, so in it he writes that uh, if you were close to someone before they died, you should still remain close to them after they die. And in fact, it'll be easier to be close to them because who you really are and who they really are is kind of separated by a body. Body is a separation. Body is a barrier. After death, there's less barriers. So it seems like, it seems like, I don't know for sure, uh, but it seems like the soul, after it's being, rem- after the body, after it's being uh, removed from the body, is in fact more aware than when it is uh, in the body. That's what it seems like. Any uh, other questions? 
No. Okay, so that's it. We have now a task. Now we know what we're doing here. Why, why are we doing all these mitzvahs? What's the point? We have a little bit of a picture. I hope Thank it was uh, useful. Thank you. Thank you. We'll see everyone. Uh, the 18th. The 18th. Thank you. Thank you.